You may be seated. The text for our sermon this morning comes from 2 Samuel 22. We're going to read verses 5 through 10, verse 17, and then 21 through 25. When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, I cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple, and my cry entered His ears. Then the earth shook and trembled, the foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because He was angry. Smoke went up from His nostrils and devouring fire from His mouth, coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under His feet. Verse 17, He sent from above, He took me, He drew me out of many waters. Verse 21, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His judgments were were before me. And as for His statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before Him and kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness, my cleanness in His eyes. Before we start in earnest this morning, I, I want to share something with you. I hope you'll enjoy, appreciate, I certainly do. When we began this series through First and Second Samuel, I had a rough schedule, I suppose, for how I would divide the texts, and I have modified that schedule many times as we've worked through First and then Second Samuel. Sometimes I realize that there was just There was too much material in the text I had originally selected to preach, and I had to divide it into several sermons. At other times, I saw a a very large picture that would take more more, uh, Scripture into account than I had originally scheduled. And so my point is, I didn't really have a definitive plan for what texts or related doctrines I'd be preaching from week to week. Last Easter... Our text was about God coming back to Israel out of the death of captivity in the land of the Philistines. God's ark, a picture of Christ, was captured by God's enemy. But He triumphed over them and returned alive and well to His church. This Easter, our text, as you can see, clearly speaks of death, judgment for sin, and vindication by God for righteousness. That's about as Easter-themed as you can get. All I can say is providence is beautiful. This was not planned. I've simply followed what I've believed to be God's leading regarding what scriptures to preach. And He has made it suit the occasions. And you're not aware of it, I suppose, but this happens all the time. I cannot count how many times my Sunday school lesson has perfectly matched with the sermon. Just ask David, Marvin, or, or Mark. They're always there. This, they can tell you it happens a lot. God has so overruled this series that two Easter's in a row, I have not put our series on hold in order to preach a special Easter sermon. Both times, the text has been exactly appropriate for the occasion. And I have not been forced to to twist the text to suit the occasion. Of course, I would never do that. Twisting Scripture to suit what you want to talk about is just one of a million ways in which men take God's name in vain. Now, of course, last Sunday was Palm Sunday, and nothing in the text of 2 Samuel 21 was suited to that particular theme, and it would have been wrong of me to twist its arm and make it suited. The week before that, however, 
still within the Lenten season, we saw David make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem just before he was rejected by Israel in favor of Sheba, the son of Bichri. That was a picture of Jesus making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem just before he was rejected by Israel in favor of Barabbas. Now, it's kind of a long digression, but I thought you'd like to know it. I have a larger goal in mind than just to preach every Sunday. I'm trying to set an example of the right way to read and study Scripture. You know, preachers are fond of saying, context is king. And I can think of no better way to illustrate the importance of context than by preaching whole books of the Bible. Because every sermon then is linked inextricably with the immediate context and the larger context. By my own example, I'm trying to show how the Bible is to be read, studied, and understood. Now, at times, we've handled some difficult subjects, but we've never been weird or esoteric. We've handled some deep subjects, but hopefully, we've been able to show how that they impact us here and now. So it's, it's beautiful to me to see how God overrules the sermon series, and without any uh, effort on my part, He causes them to just line up the way that they do. I see God's hand like this all the time. Well, now to our text. Although this song is reproduced almost verbatim in Song 18, many of its phrases are found scattered throughout the book of the Psalms. One of the most noticeable things about this song is that much of the language cannot have been spoken by David concerning himself. Oh, he undoubtedly penned these words. But when he did, he was not speaking by himself or of himself. The events of his life and reign were the substrate which the Holy Spirit used in order to make the revelation intelligible to us. And that means that while these words refer to David, they refer to him secondarily. They refer primarily to Jesus. And it isn't just of this psalm that we can say these things. We, we can say this, in fact, we must say this, of all of the songs and indeed of all of Scripture. In Exodus 9, God says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, in order that I may show my power in you. In other words, God had put that particular man on the throne of Egypt for the express purpose of destroying him as a manifestation of God's just judgment of sin. In a very similar way, we may say that God raised David up for the express purpose of depicting to us the reign of Christ as king. And that's why so many of the events of David's life have parallels in the life of Christ. We've repeatedly pointed that out during this series. It's very noteworthy that at every key event of Jesus' life and ministry, He quotes from the Psalms. He applies the, word of, the words of David to His own situation. It's as if He's saying, this event right here, this is what I was talking about a thousand years ago when I gave David these words. And when you look at the Psalms, which Jesus quotes, the events of David's life which he was speaking about were a direct parallel to the events of Jesus' life when he quoted David's words from the Psalms. In short, as Paul tells us in Acts 13, David was a prophet. Well, that brings us to our outline, and we're going to use the clauses from the Apostles' Creed, number one, dead and buried, number two, descended into hell, and number three, 
rose again. Dead and buried, our first point. David could figuratively say that he had under or encountered death. But he couldn't literally say that he had faced death, undergone it, and come out the other side victorious. David could never claim to be blameless, to have kept himself from iniquity, to have been vindicated by God because of his own personal righteousness. But those are the claims that this psalm makes. And therefore, there can be no doubt that Jesus is the true speaker of these words. I want us to notice some of the key phrases from our text because we see these very things in the gospel accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection. We read, When the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from His temple, and my cry entered His ears. Now this language clearly expresses the turmoil that our Lord endured as He faced His impending death and all that it entailed. Our catechism teaches us that all the time He lived on earth, our Lord experienced the wrath of God against our sins. It was most clearly displayed in His suffering on the cross, But it was there, and it was felt by Jesus from the very moment of His conception. Now, of course, twice during His ministry, the Father spoke from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So although Jesus lived perpetually under the experience of God's wrath against our sins, it was somewhat mollified or ameliorated by the sense of the Father's pleasure in Him. But when He was in Gethsemane, he began to feel the reality that this conscious sense of God's pleasure would be obscured under the full, infinite outpouring of wrath. And so we find him saying things like, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And now my soul is troubled. And indeed, these very expressions themselves are to be found all through the Psalms. Psalm 6, verse 3, My soul is greatly troubled. Psalm 88, 3, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. Paul tells us in Hebrews 5, 7, He offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. But the language of these words also expresses our Lord's experience of death. He actually says, the waves of death surround me. He's speaking of being completely under the power of death. And again, David could say that figuratively, but he couldn't say it literally. Jesus could. In the catechism lesson for today that's in the bulletin, we read the following. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Answer. Because With respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. The next question, why was He also buried? Answer, thereby to prove that He was really dead. That's what we're affirming when we recite the Apostles' Creed. This was the only way for God's truth to be vindicated and for His justice to be satisfied. Jesus was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was appointed by God from eternity as the atonement for the sins of His people. He is the true elect 
as Isaiah 42.1 calls Him, and we are the elect of God because we are chosen in Him, Ephesians 1.11. Christ's burial was proof that He was indeed dead. He wasn't swooning. He wasn't merely unconscious. He was dead. In verse 8 of our text, we read these fascinating words, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because He was angry. Our text refers to two things which were literally fulfilled. The crucifixion of Christ. First, the Scripture tells us that for three hours before Christ died, there was darkness over the whole earth. Secondly, the earth shook violently at the very moment that Jesus died. Scripture says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. Then behold... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Well, now we come to our second point, descended into hell. Now, there's there's some historical controversy about this particular line of the creed, but the controversy, of course lies in the bizarre explanations that some men have come up with. Rome, for instance, teaches that prior to Christ's death, everyone who died went to a place known as Sheol in Hebrew, or Hades in Greek, and in that place, which we would call hell, hell was divided into two sections. The wicked were in the bad part, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous were quarantined in a not-as-bad part, which was called Abraham's bosom. And Rome claims that while Jesus was dead, he went to hell and then preached to all the Old Testament saints who were there in the good neighborhood of hell, and then he took them all with him to heaven. And Rome calls this doctrine the harrowing of hell. Now, Scripture obviously doesn't teach such a doctrine. What Scripture does teach is that Christ endured the full, infinite wrath of God, which is the very essence of the torments of hell. But Jesus didn't suffer them in hell. His suffering ended while He was on the cross. His very last words were, It is finished. When He spoke those words, there was no more hell to pay. He had exhausted the wrath of God against the sins of the elect. And after that, He died. The authors of the Heidelberg Catechism clearly grasped the Bible's teaching on this subject. Question 44, why is there added, He descended into hell? The answer says, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which He was plunged during all His sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Now look at the words of our text again, specifically verses 9 and 10. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. Now this is language that we find throughout the Scriptures. The imagery of these verses is drawn from many previous examples of God's outpoured judgment. Our text says, God bowed the heavens and came down. Similar language is found in Genesis 11 when God is said to come down to judge Nimrod's globalist Tower of Babel scheme. 
The same expression is found in Genesis 18 where God is said to come down to judge the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. The same language is used in Exodus when God is said to come down to judge Egypt. So when we read these words, it is clear that what we're speaking of is judgment. Jesus has just spoken by the mouth of David of undergoing the pains of death, of being completely submerged <coughs> excuse me, beneath the waves of death. And here we find him further explaining what he meant in those words. His death was caused by an outpouring of God's wrath. Look again at the expression, devouring fire. Does that sound familiar? It should. When God destroyed Egypt's army at the Red Sea, Moses described it as an unleashing of God's fiery, devouring wrath. Moses, when God gave the Israel the Ten Commandments, Moses records that the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. When Moses warns Israel of the dangers of provoking God to jealousy by idolatry, he says in Deuteronomy 4.24, The Lord your God is a consuming fire. When Moses speaks of God's charge to Israel to purify Canaan of its idolatrous inhabitants, he says, But understand today that the Lord your God goes across ahead of you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them swiftly, as the Lord has promised you. Repeatedly, we find that the concept of fire from God is an image of judgment. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, we read that the Lord rained fire from heaven from the Lord. When God destroyed Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, for their unauthorized worship, fire from God flashed forth from the pillar of cloud and fire and struck them. When atonement for sin was made during the entire Old Testament era, it was made by burning sacrifices with fire upon the altar. So when we find David here speaking in the person of Christ of undergoing death and then of the fire of God's wrath being poured out, we are to understand them of speaking of the same thing. Jesus was subjected during his whole life, but especially in his death on the cross, to the devouring fire of God's wrath. God pours out his wrath against sin. That is what makes hell, hell. Our God is a consuming fire. It is God's wrath which lights the fires of hell. There was a valley in Israel called Tophet, where the ashes from all the sacrifices were dumped. It was a perpetually burning landfill. And that made it, of course, a very clear picture foreshadowing hell. A place of constantly burning against uncleanness. And Isaiah Chapter 30, verse 33 says, Tophet was established of old. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. It's virtually the same language that we find in Revelation 19, where we read of the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Again, that's the language of Genesis 19, verse 24. The Lord rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Think again of how question 44 of our beloved Heidelberger explains that phrase, he descended into hell. My Lord Jesus, by His inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies in which He was 
plunged during all of His lifetime, all of His sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. In other words, because Christ bore the eternally fiery hatred of God against sins while He hung on the cross, I do not have to fear the anguish and torments of hell. The Father bowed the heavens and came down. Smoke went up from His nostrils and devouring fire from His mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He poured out His wrath against my sins upon His beloved, only begotten Son. And Jesus bore it in full. There is nothing left. Jesus paid it all. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That's a very brief way of saying That sin is the only reason why anybody ever dies. Jesus was not a sinner, and therefore there was no reason that He should have died. But God did count to Him the guilt of our sins, and that's why He died. Nevertheless, He was not a sinner, and therefore death had no power over Him. He was really dead. His burial put it out of question. But because He was not personally a sinner, He couldn't remain dead. That's why he says things like, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. Those aren't the words of a sinner. Now that leads us to our third point, rose again. I want to reread verses 17 and then 21 to 25. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all of His judgments were before me, and as for His statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before Him, and I have kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His eyes. And we notice right away what I pointed out at the beginning of the sermon, that these words couldn't be speaking of David. Now, you and I have never killed a man and stolen his wife, but we wouldn't dare stand in front of God and talk like this. There is no one who could stand before the infinitely holy judgment seat of God and say, I have not departed from the statutes of God. I was blameless before Him. No one, except, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. What we also notice is that He is claiming that His reward is a vindication of His righteousness. Now let's set these three sections of our text in order so that we can see the logic of the passage in one big picture. The speaker says he experienced death. He explains that this was a result of God's wrath. God in His fiery anger came down in judgment upon him. And yet he can say that he is blameless in God's sight, that he never sinned against any of the commandments of God, and therefore God has rewarded him with life. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. What waters are these? Verse 5 tells us that they were the waves of death. The floods of ungodliness, it was death as the wages of sin. Now let that sink in. He is saying that he was judged with death as the wages for sin, yet he was blameless before God. Now, who else could say these words except our blessed Lord Jesus Christ? Let's again set the three sections of the text in order, understanding now that it is Jesus who is speaking. Jesus says that he experienced death. 
He also says that he experienced the outpouring of the wrath of God. And God only pours his wrath out upon sin. But he further says that God lifted him out of death and that this was a reward for his absolute perfect sinlessness. That is the true significance of Jesus' resurrection. It was a vindication of His perfect obedience. In Acts 2.24, Peter says that God raised Jesus up, quote, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that He should be held by it. It was impossible for Jesus to be held by death because death is the wages of sin. And Jesus was without sin. He was therefore exempt from the curse of the law. That's what the resurrection of Jesus meant for him. But what does it mean for us? And this is essentially what we told the children earlier. It means three things. First of all, by his resurrection, he has overcome death. And that means that he has made us partakers of the righteousness that he purchased for us by his death. His resurrection vindicated Him as righteous. And therefore, His righteousness can be counted to all that are in Christ. Secondly, His power raises us up into new life. Romans 6 asks, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Jesus, by His resurrection, bought us the power to live as Christians. The new life of a Christian is a result of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And thirdly, Christ's resurrection is a pledge of our resurrection. It is a pledge because He is our head and we are His members. If Christ is risen, then He's abolished sin. But He didn't abolish His own sin. He didn't have any. He abolished our sin. And if He abolished our sin, then He also abolished death. If you remove the cause, you remove the effect. And if He abolished our death, then His resurrection is a certain pledge of our resurrection because it's impossible that we should continue in death after Christ has rendered a full and sufficient satisfaction on our behalf. Romans 8.11 But the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let us pray.